Scripture reading this morning is found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I think Bob got our easiest scripture reading ever in the history of our church. Some of those who did those Genesis passages now are going, Bob, oh. <laughs> Genesis 20, chapter, full chapter. Uh, but why would we do it this morning? It would have been much easier if I just got up and read it. But even a greeting of a letter in the word of the Lord is inspired by God we're going to see today. And so to have Bob read it as we do every week, our scripture reading matters and was important uh, so thanks for reading it, Bob, and even though it was an easy one. Today we begin our new summer series uh, in the f- letter, the first letter to Timothy, and we're subtitling it, Building a Healthy Church. And I'm really excited about this, uh, about this series, as we'll see this morning. This is a timely letter that is for the whole church, not just pastors, not just ministry leaders. It's called a pastoral letter but 1 Timothy is for all of us, as is uh, 2 Timothy. Now, we're kind of going backwards in the Timothy letters. Uh, some of you might remember back in 2017, way back then, we went through 2 Timothy. So we're kind of going backwards. We started with 2, and now we're going to go back to 1. But you may remember back to that series, or that logo might jog your memory a bit. Uh, our big themes in 2 Timothy were enduring for the sake of the gospel, The gospel entrusted to Timothy and the church by speaking it, by guarding it, by cultivating it, we talked about. And that gospel that's contained in the Word of God, 2 Timothy spoke of, inspired by God, profitable for teaching and correction and reproof and training in righteousness. Maybe that verse rings a bell in your mind. Paul also went on in 2 Timothy to tell him, preach the Word in season and out of season, when it's popular and when it's not popular because people have trouble with hearing sound doctrine. And Paul went so far as to say people would rather hear something on a Sunday morning that just affirms them actually where they're at, doesn't challenge them, uh, tickles their ears, Paul said. Uh, So that was the backwards kind of order that we've gone. And now we come to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, this letter by Paul which is primarily Paul's letter to Timothy and the church to help them in a shifting, sometimes hostile culture. It's full of instruction on how to organize and live life together in the household of faith, how to build a healthy church. As we go throughout this series, we're going to be reminded again and again that the church is not the building. The church is what? The people. It's us, it's you and I, it's followers of Jesus Christ. How to have the true life he's going to talk about, life of faith and not depart from the truth and and hold on to the truth when others are teaching false things, lies, things that kind of sound like the truth just a little bit. And ultimately, Paul tells us the overarching theme of this book 
in chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, look at it. He tells us, I hope to come to you soon, Timothy, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, a buttress kind of as a beam that holds up a wall. So how do we organize and live in our house together? That's, Paul tells us the big theme there. That's the question. And it matters because as that verse says, we are to be us, the people, the pillar, a strong tower of truth and godly living and faith. That's why Second, or First Timothy is so important because our culture, if we're to be strong and stable, our culture swirling around us right now is in a revolutionary moment. Absolutely. Uh, nobody disagrees with that regardless of what side of the aisle you might be on. We're in a revolutionary moment with so much confusion, lots of hopelessness. As less and less people are looking to their traditional structures and institutions of meaning like the family, their faith, church, or leaders for answers. It's a destabilizing time, isn't it? I know some of you feel that. It's an unnerving time. A lot of you feel that. And the temptation for the church when we've gone through eras like this, because it's not the first one. Timothy went through an era, maybe a little similar. The temptation for every church is to kind of fiddle with what we do. We must be getting something wrong here. Or, or, Or throw away old truths and give up some things just to get along. And Paul writes, 1 Timothy, to say to the church, keep your chin up. Keep your chin up. You have something steady in the midst of the changing tides. You have hope in a real God and Savior. So, so church, keep your chin up. Hang in there, church. Timothy, hang in there. Stay the course. It's like Eugene Peterson described discipleship, the title of his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. You like that? I love that phrase. A long obedience in the same direction. Doesn't things feel kind of long right now? (laughs) A lot of things feel long. Keep building upon what God has always asked us to build upon, Jesus Christ and his gospel. Don't fiddle with it. Don't change it. Don't throw it away. So let's begin our summer series together in 1 Timothy. Today we're going to do two things. First, we're going to look at a quick introduction to the book. It's always wise and good to get the context of a book as you go into it, to know who, who was writing it, who was it to, what was the context, what does it all mean. And then second, we're going to look at just three pieces of this hopeful greeting. This hopeful greeting of this, it's a letter is what it is. So hopefully you got your outline there, grab it, you got it open, you're probably thinking, blank outline, when was the last time you saw one of those? Never. That's what happens when you get back on Thursday and you're preaching on Sunday. So you get a blank outline today, but that's okay, I still, we're still going to have points and they'll even look like fill-ins, so... Uh, for those of you who like to write, and we write because we think we remember things better. That's why we do these notes and, and provide them for you, because when you fill in, when you write and go back to it, you tend to grasp things more than just listening. So if you want to, as we go along, let's start by setting the table for First Timothy. That's what we're calling our little introduction to the background of the letter, setting the table. It's always good to talk about the background and context of any biblical book or passage so we can understand it better. It was written 
2,000 years ago. Let that sink in. 2,000 years ago. So let's first talk about this. The author and the recipient of this letter as we set the table now for this book. Well, as we said, the Apostle Paul wrote, this is one of his 13 New Testament letters and one of his three pastoral letters. The pastoral letters are 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. But this is one of his overall 13 letters who wrote a, big, a vast majority of the New Testament. And Paul's writing to a friend, the recipient named Timothy. But Paul was also not just a friend of Timothy, Paul was a mentor to Timothy. He was a, a, a teacher to Timothy. He was an example to Timothy. He took him along on missionary journeys. And Paul, as he met Timothy in Lystra, as recorded in Acts 16, let's look at their, greeting for, their meeting for a minute. Paul came also to Derby and Lystra. Lystra is his hometown. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, so he comes from a mixed marriage. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews. Timothy came from a mixed family who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. So Paul has a fondness for this man, Timothy, that he's writing to. Maybe like one of your best friends in the faith. Maybe it's somebody you can think of who you discipled years back, who's now grown themselves. Or even today as we welcome in our seventh graders into our service for the first time. That relationship of, of, of those we are pouring into with our life, Paul writes to Timothy. He's got a fondness for him. Even in our passage today, calling him my true child in the faith. It's not a tender, sweet phrase. So like a father to a son, like a teacher to a disciple, Paul reaches out in a tender heart to this uh, younger pastor. One of the great things I'm excited most about this series is we're going to kind of model this Paul and Timothy thing. As late in, as in the month of August, I'm actually inviting three of my mentors who have poured into my life to guest preach in this book in August. I'm really looking forward to that because as this is a letter from a, a teacher to his disciple, as a mentor to his student, so I want to mirror that and get, let you meet the men in my life who have been that to me. And so in August, they're gonna, we're going to do it every other week where we have a few of my mentors uh, fly and come up here uh, to preach to us. I'm really looking forward to that. But who is the recipient, Timothy? Paul wrote to him, I think as I think about Timothy, and I think about the Bible and Timothy, I think a lot of people like Timothy because I think he seems like a regular guy, not like this towering figure, the Apostle Paul. Timothy is a little more vulnerable like us. He wasn't overly accomplished, and he's known in Scripture to be somebody who was relatively young, probably in his mid-30s at this time. He's a guy that gets timid. He's a guy that's shy. He, he's a person who, who has trouble in crowds. Maybe that's you. This is Timothy. He's relatable. He's kind of like a regular guy. He had illness, we know, as we'll see in this book. He suffered from stomach illness even as a young man. He needs, he's a guy that needs to be encouraged. He's a guy that needs to be reassured in his calling. I don't know about you, but I feel like almost every day 
I need to be reassured daily in my walk and encouraged. And so I hope we'll relate to this man. To be encouraged, I need it, as Timothy needed, in spite of my shortcomings, in spite of my weaknesses. And thank God that Timothy had a loving, tender mentor in Paul. He gives him this word. So that's writer and recipient. What about the time and place? Let's talk about that. When was this? What was going on in the context of this letter? Well, like the church of today and the church of every single era, the church in the first century, this is the first century AD now, was facing their own unique challenges. Paul wrote this in probably the mid-60s AD to Timothy, who was given the task of overseeing the churches that were rising up in this town called Ephesus. You see it on the map there behind me. Over here, the largest word there, Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey on the Aegean Sea. It's east of Greece, you see there, and north of Syria and Jerusalem and Israel. To give a little context there, you got Greece and then Italy over there. Just to give you an idea where Timothy lived and where he was left by Paul to oversee these churches. Ephesus was a large commercial city. It wasn't like Bethlehem or a little Nazareth or a little town or village out in the dusty roads. This was a, this was a, a city, commercial city even. So it was full of all kinds of people and all kinds of ideas and lots of cult practices like magic and, and sorcery and, 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 and temple, strange temple worshiping practices that Timothy was in wasn't the Bible Belt. <laughs> it was a city, diverse and complex, and Timothy was called to minister there. So it would have been a really challenging uh, ministry post for a young, timid pastor with unique plurality of views and diversity. You know, you could say similar to our day in some ways. Lots all kinds of ideas out there today. We don't have to go to a big city to get them. We just click our mouse, right? All kinds. So what's its message then? If that's then the place and time, what's the message of this book before we get into this little greeting? First Timothy addresses a, a number, a host of issues for us that we're going to see in June, July, and August that are relevant to us, I would say, today as well. First and foremost, it's this one. What do we do about false teaching? What do we do about teaching that kind of sounds true and then, but just a little bit off? What do we do about false teaching? in the church even. As for Timothy, it had arisen in the church, the church he'd been left in Ephesus to take uh, charge of, and, and certain persons were there teaching false doctrine. Look at verse 3 and 4 of chapter 1. We'll get into them next week more thoroughly, but as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. There it is. Stay there so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that's by faith. So that's his job. He's been tasked to do that by the towering figure, the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine? Like, I'll do my best. Okay, Paul. It's a big town. Lots of people. Lots of ideas. Okay, well, later on, we're going to even look at two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who were probably two elders in the church who had to be actually sent out of the church because two elders in the church were teaching false doctrine even. It's primary. 
But a host of other issues are going to be addressed, all relevant to today. Here's some of them. How do Old Testament laws apply to Christians? Do you know? How about this one? Can women teach in the church? What's the role of men and women in the church? I'm going to let David preach that week. <laughs> Just te- I'm teasing. It's a tough topic, isn't it? It's totally relevant, though. There are denominations that are in the middle of splits right now because of this. What is the role of men and women? What has God uniquely called you to do as a man or as a woman? Matters. Who should be elders and deacons in a church? And what's their role? Here's another one. How do I spot false teaching? I hope these are like going like, yeah, that is relevant today. Like that matters. How do we care for widows is another one. And and what does gospel-shaped living look like? Those are the kind of big themes and topics we're going to hit. And I hope they pique your curiosity and your interest. And if the church is primarily called the household of God as that verses in uh, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 that we saw, if the church is primarily called the household of God, the pillar and buttress of the truth, it should absolutely be for you and I of utmost importance to us how we're to live together. How do we interact? How do we relate to each other and to God? Let me ask you a question. How do you order your house? Your house, your home. Uh, the Bible word for it is oikos, your home. How do, you, how do you order it? What do you do there? Who does the cooking? Who does the laundry? Who cuts the grass? Who takes out the trash? Who does the discipline? Who pays the bills? Who gets the biggest piece of cake, right? All those really important questions. You know the answer to that one. You do, I know. If we've got a consistent structure and order to our family homes, why should the church, the family of God, be any different? And even just as important, how we handle the call of disciple-making and gospel-living, it matters. We organize and, and structure our homes so that they function and run well. And so First Timothy is to the church to say, well, this is also a home. This is also a family. But this family's responsibility is to hold on to the truth. And so then don't you think it matters that we would do that too? Order our house. And that's why Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. So let's spend a few more minutes in this letter that matters. It matters to us by looking at this greeting in the letter. We'll look at three parts of this. We're calling it a hopeful greeting. It's a hopeful greeting uh, that Paul gives to Timothy in this letter. Aren't you always a little nervous when you get a letter or a note from someone in an authoritative position. Maybe it's a little memo from your boss. Uh, This last week, we got our mail uh, out that we've been put on hold for the week we were gone at the post office, vacationing, you you can put on hold and get it all later. And this giant stack of mail came back to us in the post office. And Robin and I were in the kitchen, uh, sitting at the table, going through this massive uh, stack. And out of this massive stack, like five pieces were relevant. You know, that's like the rest of it over here was like, oh, sorry, recycle. You know, five pieces really mattered. But uh, as we picked up those five pieces, one letter we looked at said on the top, Internal Revenue 
service. Now, no one picks up a letter from the IRS and says, wow, I can't wait to read this one, right? This is going to be great news. I just can't even wait to open it. I can tell you the greeting did not say grace, mercy, and peace to you, Mr. Jennings. It didn't say that. It wasn't a bad letter. I don't even know what it was. We were not being audited. That's the main thing, right? That's a, like You can sigh relief. Um, but here, this letter is a tender, hopeful greeting from a father of the faith to his son, which is, is packed full of goodness for us. In just two verses even, just packed full of goodness. We shouldn't overlook it. So let's look at these three pieces of this hopeful greeting this morning. Here's our first one. This greeting lets us know that this letter is an authoritative, inspired letter written by an apostle of Jesus. All this is going to be in the greeting today, these three things that are really packed full for us. The first verse of many of Paul's letters serve a great purpose. They're not just throwaway lines. Like, let's get through this pleasantries and the formality of a greeting and get on to the good stuff. No, Paul packs his greetings full. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. Paul is listing his credentials here. Not to boast, not to brag and say, look how great I am. But he's listing his credentials here, and this actually matters a lot. Paul is claiming something astounding here in this greeting of this letter, which in turn gives this letter a huge amount of weight, weightiness, a a depth, some teeth to the letter. He's saying, I, Paul, am an apostle of Jesus. Well, okay, we know that. We know that. What's the big deal? Well, Acts chapter 1, according to Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, to be an apostle of Jesus, you had to be present during his earthly ministry and see him and be with him from his baptism through his life to his death to his resurrection to his ascension. That's who the disciples were. That's who the apostles are. Acts 1 makes that really clear. These were men handpicked by Jesus to be his representatives on earth after he left. When I go on vacation, as I did last week, our elders and I take very seriously who we ask to fill this pulpit. I hope you're glad we do that. Who will be the one that we allow to step into this pulpit? Not because I'm anything special as they stand in for me, no. But because when they step into this pulpit, they are going to open the authoritative Word of God and speak an authoritative word from that Word. That question and answer matters. Who's going to fill in when I step away? Again, not because I'm so special and important. I'm not, but because the Word of God Because when someone speaks from this place in our sanctuary, it carries with it some weight because we know this is the place where someone stands to open this authoritative word from God. 
So unless our elders know the character and the theology and the intent and the calling of someone, our elders wouldn't be comfortable just letting anyone preach and stand there and represent Jesus and the Word of God. Now that's in our small church, in our small town. Now imagine Jesus choosing who would speak in His absence to the world after His ascension. The apostles. The apostles who knew Him, who saw Him, who loved Him, and who He knew as well. Paul's saying, by the command of God the Father, in verse 1, and our Lord Jesus, I am a spokesperson. I'm a herald. I'm a, I'm a voice of the King. He wasn't elected by committee, the Apostle Paul, or by one of the churches. He was God-elected, he's saying, divinely appointed. Now, Paul wasn't there for all of Jesus' ministry. Probably saw some of it. But he was divinely appointed as Jesus appeared to him. You probably know that story from Acts 9 on the road to Emmaus. Jesus himself also handpicked Paul. He's saying, I'm a representative of the king of the universe. Just in this first verse. God and Jesus appointed me, verse 1 says. Which really means, Paul's saying there, Jesus is God. Did you catch that? catch that? He says, God appointed me by command and Jesus appointed me by command. How do we know that, that Paul's saying there, Jesus is God? Would Paul at any other moment say, well, God and James appointed me? <laughs> or God and Peter appointed me? No. He would never connect those two together. No, he says, God and Jesus are hope. That Jesus, too, is God. God appointed me, he's saying. It means this word, Timothy, that you're getting, this letter you're reading to the church is, a, is as authoritative as if Jesus was speaking. Because Paul is a commanded apostle. But we also know, as Paul knows, that God's word is inspired. Do you know what that means? His word is inspired. It's a big theme of 2 Timothy. Uh, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable because of that for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul's saying in this greeting that because I'm an apostle, because I've been handpicked by God, what I write is the Word of God. He's filled me. He's inspired me. As 2 Peter says, the Spirit fills those that write the Word and carries them along so that in some mysterious way, the personality of the writer and the truth and power of the Spirit come together in this mysterious union, and what we get is the actual Word of God. That's inspired. We add to that inerrant, which means without error. So this little greeting then, if Paul's packing all that in there, He's saying that as you come to this letter, you don't read this letter. This letter is going to read you. That's what that means. We don't read, yes, we read the Word of God, we study, we read it, but really the Word of God is to read us. We don't shape and mold the Word of God. In other words, the Word of God shapes and molds us. That's what this letter is to do. 
We don't get to shape it, change it, or misinterpret it. And this means that all inspired Scripture, all is the word of Jesus. That means even in your red-letter Bible, right? Those are great Bibles, but they also can sort of misinterpret what's taking place there to imply that the red is actually the words of Jesus. No, 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 no. All of it, from Genesis to Revelation, is the words of Jesus. It's the Word of God. So the Gospels don't carry any more weight than Paul's letters as the New Testament doesn't carry any more weight than the Old. Of course, sometimes some are more relevant and more applicable than other parts at certain times in our life. But it matters as we get to this letter of 1 Timothy that it is God's Word, that it is inspired, that it is inerrant because the church was Jesus' idea. And this letter is all about addressing the church, you and I. The church was Jesus' idea. The church belongs to Jesus, you and I. The church was founded by Jesus, by His life, by His death, by His resurrection. You spiritually exist with life and are part of the church because of Jesus. And so if that's all true, and He's the one building his church, it really matters what he says about his church. And Jesus spoke through Paul in 1 Timothy. It's an authoritative, inspired letter of an apostle. So let's read it and study it together this summer and let, it, let us let it shape Bethany Church this summer, which means here too, make it a priority of your summer to be part of this series. I know summer... There's so many distractions and, and things we have to do and vacations. I get that. But apart from that, make it a point to be here this summer. Jesus is going to shape this church this summer through this letter. That's our first little nugget we pull from this hopeful greeting. Here's our second piece from this hopeful greeting. This is a really timely letter to a pastor and the church in our changing, transforming, shifting world. It's a really timely letter. Timothy, as we've already uh, kind of implied, was a man who was shaken a bit by the issues of his day. I, the, uh, this is the church right now, actually, in some ways. A little rattled. What's our identity going forward? Who are we going forward? Who's going to be here going forward? Bethany Church isn't just asking these questions. All churches are. And Timothy was shaken in his day by things going on in his life and world, and he needed an authoritative word from God. And so do we. So do you. An authoritative word from God in your life. And apart from it being an inspired and errant word, we couldn't have this encouragement this morning. I couldn't guarantee anything from this for you apart from it being God's inspired word. Timothy was rattled by the divisiveness of false teaching in and around the church. That was the big thing in his world. Discord and divisiveness in the body of Christ. It is one of the most harmful and detrimental toxins to the gospel of Jesus and our witness. If you look around the church, not to us, the church, there is no shortage of ammunition looking at the church, looking at many of its leaders. There's no shortage of ammunition for those who want the church and to look and use against us. 
There's plenty of ammunition. Now, of course, the church has done absolutely and continues to do amazing, sacrificial, loving things throughout her history. But as with every area of life, what do people remember most? (laughs) The negative, don't they? Remember the negative things. Like 10 good things can happen to you and one bad, and 10 years later, what do you remember? The bad thing, the negative thing. This is why God chooses to put this letter in the Bible. Because how we act inside the household of faith matters, not just to us, but to the world. What they see, what they know about us. Now, of course, we can be misfairly represented and many times the narrative in our culture and media has been. But we also need to be accountable and responsible too for our past, for our present, for our future. How we act inside the household of faith. This is why your elders call you to be part of something like covenant membership in our church. That's why. And why we discipline ourselves, all of us, with the word positively, because that's what we're doing every week. Do you know that? We practice church discipline at Bethany Church every Sunday. That's just what sitting under the word is, a positive, authoritative word of discipline in our lives. Positively and even proactively, We should practice it when a brother and sister err. We love Jesus a lot, so we love his bride a lot. You can't have one without the other. There's no concept of a Christian who loves Jesus who doesn't love his bride too. It's not possible. We're his body. We're, We're intimately connected to him. We love him a lot because he died to purchase that bride, didn't he? He died to save us, and and now that bride, now we represent him on earth, like the apostles did, like Peter did, like Timothy did. Now you, you, me, we represent him on earth. So when one of the members of the bride is tarnishing the name of Jesus or, or causing discord in the body, we cannot ignore it. We can't just sweep it under the rug. We can't turn a blind eye because we all know that ultimately that causes more destruction in the long run anyways, doesn't it? The harder, earlier conversation is much harder, but it's much better. This letter matters to all of us, not just pastors. Why? Because all of us should care deeply about the bride, about the people of God. We, we, we can't ignore it. And, and our mission to represent and be on mission for Jesus. And so anything that hinders that mission has to be spoken to and considered and taken into consideration and addressed. And 1 Timothy is essential because it does just that. It speaks to how we are to relate to each other and how we're to relate to God. And what could be more timely than that? with the craziness of the world around us, with people looking for ammunition to use maybe against the church. That's why we're going to tackle the hard issues it addresses together because, again, we are to be, as the household of God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. That's why we're going to go through 1 Timothy. But even for all its challenging topics, which I said we're going to get into, the role of men and women in the church What more controversial hot topic is there than that today? 
It's a big one in the evangelical world right now. But even for all these challenging topics, the third thing we look at in this letter, this greeting to close today, is the hope we have. This is a letter our greeting tells us of salvation and hope found in God and in His gift to us, to the bride, to the church. Verse 1 again, he says there, God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope, Paul writes. This is an inspired letter, yes. It deals with real challenging issues, absolutely. But right away, Paul wants Timothy to know this timid man who's been rattled by things in his life, like you and I, he wants us to know there is hope. There's hope for you, for me, as we sometimes feel like we stagger and limp along on this journey of discipleship and faith. Maybe you feel that today. And Paul, as he said to Timothy, hope in Jesus, he says today. There is hope. It's Jesus. He wants Timothy and us to know right at the beginning, true hope. In a letter, and as you look at this now, as we go through it, in a letter that speaks so much about the structure and functioning of the church, you might get the impression that our hope is in our administration or our orderliness or our choosing of godly deacons and elders in the roles of men and women. Or as you read this letter, you might think our hope is in the ability of uh, our ability to take care of business and clean up our act. Now, those things are very important, but they are more means to an end than an end in and of themselves. Ordering our collective life together as a church is so that we don't get in the way of the true hope Jesus. That's why we do it. Those are guardrails to keep our lives and each local church on track so that the focus can stay on Jesus and the gospel rather than infighting or controversy or dealing with false teaching. Do you see? That's, that's, that's why. That's why we implement something like covenant membership, as I've already spoken of today. It's not because we really love formality here at Bethany Church. Can you imagine? We just love to be formal. No, no. No, we implement it because we really love Jesus. And it's a tool to help us represent Him well in our community. It's ordering the household of faith because we're the pillar and buttress of truth. That's why we do that. Like this letter for the church, it's guidance, it's, it's guardrails for how we're to relate to God and to e- each other so that we remain that pillar and buttress of truth. Because that is where true hope lies. Jesus. That's where true hope lies. It's in a person and his work for us. I don't think we always understand that or grasp that. Our hope is not in a nameless, faceless deity. Our hope is not in church membership. Our hope is not in our attendance together. Our hope is not in our cultural standing as Christians. Our hope is not in political power. Our hope is not in our smiling families. Our hope is not in our bank accounts or our retirement plan. Our hope is in a person. The real Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus, 
that's your hope this morning. All those little things we grab onto and hold onto that think that we think are going to deliver us, they're all usually good things, but they can't be your ultimate hope. Paul puts it right in the greeting. Timothy, I know your life is rattled. Your hope is Jesus. It's his word for us this morning too. And the gifts he brings, look at verse 2. To, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul wants these three words to be what ring in Timothy's ears as he launches off in now to looking at this letter from his father of the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace. And they bring the context of the gospel to mind for us and God's character. It's so easy to gloss over Paul's greetings, isn't it? Grace, mercy, and peace to you. Peace to you. Peace to you. Grace, mercy, and peace. Just kind of gloss over it. But Paul is saying here, these three words, Timothy, in your timidity, in your nervousness, in your anxiety, Timothy, these three words, grace, mercy, and peace, this is how God will deal with you. This is how God will shepherd you and guide you as a father. Timothy, grace, mercy, peace. And there's the three things that unite us as believers, aren't they? Grace, mercy, and peace. And we can't have them apart from a work of God. John Stott describes the importance of these three words so well when he says, For grace is God's kindness to the guilty and undeserving, mercy his pity on the wretched who cannot save themselves, and peace his reconciliation of those who were previously alienated from him and one another. And it's in this context of grace and mercy and peace that harmony and love and obedience is made possible in the church. We don't pursue the mission of church life together to get God's favor, do we? We don't. We pursue it because Jesus has already secured for us on the cross grace, mercy, and peace. Because of these, Timothy, now go as a church and build up and live life together. Not to get these, but because you already have them. These are God's gifts to us. So it's an authoritative, timely letter of hope, a manual on how to conduct ourselves in God's presence. Let me finish with a little illustration for us. Imagine you found yourself adrift at sea in a lifeboat with your family. doesn't matter how you got there. For the sake of, I guess, our story, the cruise ship sunk and you were one of the families that got to one of the lifeboats. You were there. You were able to get, get to the lifeboat. Except as you got there, you realized as you tried to start the engine of this lifeboat that it had not been serviced in a really long time. And it wasn't working. It had a tank full of gas, but it wasn't working. And you'd been adrift now for two weeks as a family you're now running out of water, you're running out of food, and things are looking really bad. But one of your kids, who is the one that always gets into things, that you're always mad at for getting things, is getting into things in the boat and finds a manual under the seat of uh, one of the seats for the engine of the boat. And you found that manual. But as you looked at the manual, 
for the sake of the story, go along with me now. This was a really unique, finicky engine. Really unique. Really finicky. And if you made one mistake as you took this manual and looked back to put this engine together, it'd be totally fried. And you would forever drift. How much attention would you pay to that manual? (laughs) Perfect attention. You love that family. You want to keep that family safe and get them home. You need that engine running to complete your journey and what you're called to do as a family. You would be scrupulous. You would be meticulous. You'd have wrapped attention to detail to that manual for your family. If you and I would go to those lengths for our personal family, what about Jesus' family? We're in this boat together, aren't we? (laughs) You're in this local church together, aren't you? We're here together. You're not sitting on planks. You're sitting in chairs, but we're here together. We have here in 1 Timothy a manual of sorts for the family of Jesus. And our mission is to be healthy, to build a healthy church so we stay afloat and we stay on course and we complete our mission of sharing that same grace and mercy and peace of Jesus with the world. That's why this letter matters. It's here for us to follow. It's here authoritatively to align, to tune up, to restore our gospel engine. So join me this summer as we look at this first letter, 1 Timothy, together. Let's pray. Jesus, your word is to us. Your word is for us. Your word guides us. Your word builds us. And that's what we want 1 Timothy to do, to continue to build a healthy local church here, at Bethany, in Canby, so that we can live into and for our mission of helping people follow Jesus, those who are near to Him and those who are far away from Him. It matters how we live in the household of faith. We don't want to be the ones that get in the way of the gospel. We only want the gospel to offend, not our lives, not how we treat each other. So Jesus used this manual, filled with grace, mercy, and peace, to change each and every one of us and us collectively as a church. In Christ's name. Amen.